Welcome to Not Your Ordinary Parts, a podcast where we talk about hard things associated with the human experience. You may hear information from professionally licensed therapists, life coaches, healers, doctors, etc. This information is not medical advice or therapy and it's not meant to replace actual therapy or instructions given to you by a doctor or a personal therapist. I'm your host, Jalan Johnson. My guest today is Rev Carla. Rev Carla is a spiritual teacher who understands the pain and confusion experienced by those who have suffered religious trauma. Having overcome her own struggles, she's dedicated to helping others recover from their trauma, reclaim their spirituality, and find purpose and authenticity in their lives. With a growing following of nearly 640,000 on social media, she uses her creativity and wit to connect with her followers and guide them towards healing and growth. So welcome to the show, Carla. Thank you so much for being my guest. Well, it's an honor to be here. And there's absolutely no ego in this when I say that it's now over 650,000 followers. So I just feel like I have to let that out there. <laughs> no <laughs> ego involved in that at all. <laughs> you just corrected me. <laughs> um, I gave a bit of an introduction, but so that the audience can get to know you a little bit better, would you mind telling us your story on how you got to who and where you are today? I would be happy to. And you can just cut me off like this if it becomes too much. But, you know, I think it's important for people who have never actually maybe heard some of the things that we're going to discuss, whether it's religious trauma or deconstructing. These are kind of new terms. Um, even today, I'll still have people after doing this work now for over six years, will say, I've never heard about religious trauma. So I think it's, it's good to start back a little bit at the beginning. I'm a boomer, so I've been around for a while. Um, I was born in 61 and I can honestly say that I, since the beginning, I, I have been chasing and been in love with Jesus. Um, I was raised Southern Baptist. My grandmother was a staunch Southern Baptist. And because my mother was single, we spent a lot of time with, time with my grandmother. So I always say that if those church doors were open, we were there. We, we were in church, whether it was Sunday night, um, Sunday morning, Wednesday night, vacation Bible school, and of course, the good old revivals, because we're talking about the deep hills, what I call sometimes that Southern draw will come out when you hear me say heal, then you know, I'm really going back to my roots but um, those revivals changed me. They, they did, even though I can also say that in one ear, I could hear that as a little girl, I'm being told by people who love me that I can be whatever I want to be. But at the same time, I'm hearing from the pulpit that women can't be what we want to be. So this conflict in me and this awareness of it started really, really early on. And I wasn't one for um, to be in the the kids Bible school. I wanted to be with the adults. There was something in me. There was a longing there um, that wanted to understand what, who Jesus was and what, how does spirituality impact your life? So if, the, if, if there was a tent revival going on and it was nine nights, I was there every night with my grandmother. Now, as I, as I continued to grow and her influence was lessened on me and I was in high school, I became more um, less attached to the Southern Baptist tradition and became uh, close to some of the uh, organized churches that my friends were a part of. But the, that conflict also started instantly because for me to volunteer in the church, they would not accept my Southern Baptist 
uh, baptism. I had to be rebaptized. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, well, this is ridiculous, but I want to be a part of this spiritual community. So I'm going to obey. I'm going to submit to this authority, even though it made no sense. So at the time, I always talk about these little uh, breadcrumbs that were leading me to the point where I finally uh, deconstructed. Those are, those are the kinds of things that happened where I can look back and say, that makes no sense. If I was baptized, then I made a proclamation of my faith and I'm, I'm, I'm actually showing it in my works and my desire to be closer to this divine source of love. But yet there were conditions that weren't good enough for the denominations that I wanted to belong in. And as I continued on, I navigated through uh, different types of denominations, including progressive. Um, and this is not this is not church shopping or church hopping, as they call it. I was invested. My family and I would be invested. My husband and I were invested. So when I ended up at a we ended up at a Presbyterian church, I was an ordained elder. We did the work. We were looking for something that what I finally realized was never going to be found or contained inside organized religion. What religion was doing to this spiritual experience for me was putting God into small a box. Now, somebody might hear that and think, whoa, now you just triggered me because I find everything I need inside my spiritual experience inside church. And I want to say, or in religion, and I want to say good for you. This is my story. This is my experience. And what, what I think you're seeing with everybody who's now telling their stories of deconstructing or telling their stories of how religion harmed them is that we're saying the table of humanity can be big enough for all of us. And our lived experiences and, and the spirituality that we are seeking doesn't mean I'm minimizing yours, but it also means that I get to reclaim mine and my story. So God inside this box of religion was just too small for me. And that's why eventually I left and I knew the day I was leaving that I wouldn't, wasn't returning to that church at the time. I didn't know I was going to be leaving church entirely. I didn't even know that when I ended up in interfaith, interspiritual seminary, which I or, uh, graduated from in 2017 as an ordained interfaith, interspiritual minister. Interfaith means that we honor the wisdom and the sacredness that are in um, all world religions and inner spiritual says that spirituality can and does exist outside of organized religion. So it's very much an expansive place of compassion and awareness and connectivity that says there are many paths to the divine and we need to stop arguing about those paths and just honoring how people are experiencing this divine source of life and stop some of the gatekeeping that's been happening over the years. But even with that, and, and I kept that when I was in seminary and I was going to college before that, and I did this late, I was in my fifties when I experienced all this. Um, I didn't tell a lot of people, a lot of my family is, was, is, is still Southern Baptist because I didn't know what was happening here. Again, I was just answering this call to know and experience and understand the divine on a different, different type of understanding than what I had experienced in just my Christian experience. And I certainly found it on this path. But so it wasn't until afterwards that I realized that a mentor uh, shared with me that 
you're going to walk this path of healing, of deconstructing, of finding divine source of love, uh, understanding your awareness of who and what God is and how people find this love uh, throughout the world. And you're going to help other people find their path. You're going to, you're going to navigate this and then you're going to be able to say here, come this way. And I'm like, that makes no sense to me. But what it, the way it showed up was I just started writing online. I started telling my story and oh boy, did that make some people mad? Because when you tell your story, you're offering people a mirror and they somehow see in themselves the parts of their story that may have actually contributed to some of the pain that I'm now giving light to. And it's not a personal attack, but they can't help but feel that somehow they're responsible for it. Or it's also a jostling of something that they may have felt that they're afraid to admit. But that was in 2017. 2016 was when I really began writing online. And now 650,000 followers later, I certainly have found people who understand what I'm doing and how my message resonates, my message resonates with them. So now I call myself um, an ordained interfaith, interspiritual minister who walks the spiritual but not religious path and who helps people um, heal from their religious trauma and deconstruct from their harmful religious experience to reclaim their spirituality. That does not fit on a business card, but that's as close as I can come <laughs> to explaining uh, who I am. And uh, so that pretty much wraps up where, how I got here to today. Lots of stories that will come out in the book and it's coming out in 2024, but that's pretty much a wrap up right there. Nice, thank you for that. I, I think that um, one thing you mentioned is that when you're healing from experiences that may have been harmful and other people can relate, you provide a mirror. Um, and I think that, you know, although we all can believe how we want to believe or feel how we want to feel, we can't ignore the fact that at times and a lot of times there is harm done and that harm a lot of times is brushed under the rug and giving light and a voice to those who have been, you know, harmed or, or are suffering from pain that they've experienced is something that can provide a lot of healing. Yes, for sure. And we, we can, you know, talking about the triggers that oftentimes we uh, feel when something, something new or foreign or threatening um, is upon us, if we can see it as an invitation to look at what is unsettling inside that, that we are being offered this mirror, um, we then can see that we have choices. Is, is the triggering coming from a place of us that we are being invited to look at the brokenness inside of us, something that's actually ready to come forward, to be healed? It's asking for light. It's asking for your space. Or another option is just to knock that mirror <laughs> out of the person's hand and say, no, I'm not ready. And that's where, you know, you can see those triggered responses of anger or fear or rage or blind rage, because I just cannot face that. Um, so yeah, we can, we can go a little deeper in that and some of in the rest of this, but yeah, that's what it is. If we can see it that way, then we can understand that when, when we, when we have those feelings where it's actually an opportunity to move closer to our own authenticity and our own healing. Right. 
and I love the concept of, of duality, the fact that two things can coexist at once because people can have, you know, the, the best of intentions and they may be very good people, but they may also hurt you. Oh, Jalan, you just hit on something I talk about a lot, the true self and um, the the duality of of existence and that a lot of people will you don't hear that taught a lot because it's often associated with like new age wisdom or the uh, tra traditions, the uh, Near East traditions and things like that, where we're not used to holding on to some of that wisdom because non-duality tells us it's either this way or it's evil. It's either this way or it's the devil. It's you have to believe this or you're going to, to go to hell. And that non-duality when, when you're shifting away from that and you realize that the world isn't and spirituality isn't that black and white and you find yourself in this spiritually wobbly place, then like, well, wait a minute. Well, what do I, what do I hold on to? What is true? And honestly, a, a spiritual journey can be just going to find the answer to that. Instead of saying that my, my denomination, it demands that I believe this spirituality in this duality experience says, let's just move towards that question. And I'm going to hold on to that and remain in this curious, this curiosity, because this is moving me closer to the divine than I've ever been in my life. And you are ta talking to somebody who could walk the walk when it came to the Southern Baptist tradition, evangelical Christianity, uh, progressive Christianity. I knew the rules and I knew the Bible. And to let that go and stay here was a very, indeed, a wobbly experience. And just like you said, two things can be true. And even as my words may trigger someone, two things can be true. I will admit that organized religion, Christianity, has been good to me. It is the reason what my grandmother instilled in me is the reason I'm here today. And it also harmed me. So it can be good and it can also harm people. Both things can be true. My ministry isn't about saying I want to kick it out of off the table. I'm saying there's room enough for both of us here. I see. Um, when I had initially reached out to you, if you remember, it was because of a video that you had posted. Mm -hmm. And it literally blew my mind and I was so just blown away by it. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, like I, I want to thank her for this. Um, and it was a video that validated so many things for me. Like I literally felt like, oh my goodness, I feel this on a very deep level. And um, I think that there is, an awakening happening by children of boomers and emotionally immature parents where they're realizing that their parents did the best that they could and they did a really good job with the tools that they had, but also they may not have been able to, or they may not have had enough capacity to, to, um, what am I looking for? They, okay, so emotional maturity and being emotionally immature was something that I think 
boomers and the generation before them were just not comfortable. You know, they didn't feel their feelings. They ran from their feelings. Um, so they didn't, they didn't have the proper tools to sustain their own emotional well-being, let alone their children, right? Um, mm-hmm. So you answered the question, what's wrong with our parents? And I want to spend some time unpacking that because you gave a response to that question that I want to start the conversation with. And I actually want to play the audio of it so that we can then dive into it. So okay. I'll, I'll play the audio right now. And I got a little tongue twisted there because I was so excited about this <laughs> okay. and I was trying to think of so many things. But... It's all right. It's, this is about being real, right? All right. Okay, so I'll play it now. What is wrong with our parents? I'll tell you what's wrong with us. Patriarchy. We were influenced by grandparents raised in the silence generation who thought women were just an asset in a marriage. Children who were our parents were just a nuisance until they were old enough to work on the farm. I have relatives who were plucked out of school, never received an education because the cows have got to be milked and that is more important than learning math. And then we were raised to be seen and not heard and to respect our elders. Obedience meant that you obeyed your elders no matter what, because what they said was God breathed, even if they didn't practice what they preached. And we knew we were broken, but we didn't talk to each other because we were always taught that anything that had to do with mental or emotional challenges was a sign of weakness. And the church taught us that our emotional crisis was a lack of faith. We knew we needed to do better, but we didn't know how. And oftentimes that meant our children were parenting us through our emotional crises. Some of us just gave up and said, it's too hard, it's not worth it, and hey kids, you're on your own. Some of us said, nope, I'm not going to blame my parents or my grandparents for the effed up person I am because they're only marrying what they were taught, and I'm going to find out how I can spiral out of this. Somewhere, somehow, we broke free, but it left us severely flawed and broken and no idea how to fix it. But we're here, and we're learning, and it's the future generations that are teaching us, so, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> let's talk patriarchy. <laughs> Woo, I said all that. Um, I Yeah, so I remember the day that that video came out and I saw that people were stitching. Stitching is you know, part of what the TikTok lingo, where you take it, you grab that video, and then you, you make a response to it. And that just poured out of me. It was at a time where I was writing a lot about religious trauma and understanding patriarchal indoctrination. And I'm just going to, if we just take a subset of what we're talking about here in America, because you can talk about hierarchical structures that go back infinity and, and look at that, but just basically in America from the very first time where all men are created equal, really meant white men and how we created amendments to the constitution as we became aware of the restrictions that that kind of structure put on human beings. And even to today, we are still fighting for what that means as we look at people who want to, who call themselves originalist and want to go back to the, the original meaning of the constitution that says, well, let's go back to what they really meant because times were better then. And when people say times were better, what they meant is that people understand this hierarchical structure and they submitted to it. It wasn't that it was better. It was better for the people higher up with privilege. So you knew your place and you submitted to it. And even though you you were miserable and you may have grumbled about it in your living room 
or in your cabin or in your tent, whatever you were forced to live by on this structure, you had no means of recourse. So you go back through time and you look at the places where the civil war, the civil rights, uh, all those th places where we pushed that envelope, but we're still living in a highly patriarchal system that's built around primarily the white Christian male. So as a child of the 60s, y'all can sit here and argue about it all day, but I was alive when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. I was alive when the, when the women first got the right to um, the uh, birth control pill, that women could own a credit card in their own names, that could actually own property without their husband's approval. When women started getting rights to actually not just be an asset at a divorce hearing, when women could, I hope you're there, you just, your, your video just went off. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, where, you know, we're constantly seeing these places where tensions are happening. Of course, we're in a high tension area again, because what we are fighting is patriarchy. So expanding a little bit on what I said in that, in that video is those, we're not talking about ancient history here. Yes, I'm 61 years old, but the very people who raised me and who are still alive are, are the ones who now are controlling our elements of power. So patriarchal indoctrination not only impacts our government, it impacts our family structure, and it impacts our religious structure. So not only were you indoctrinated to say, I have to respect this structure inside my governmental institution, i.e. the Constitution, I have to respect the church authority in the same way. And even though you see the hypocrisy in some of those actions, you do not have a voice to, in, to push up against it. And so again, the, these high moments of tension when people finally say, I don't wanna live like this anymore. And so I would say that for the late boomers, like I am, I'm sometimes called uh, a boomer or the Jones generation between uh, the Gen Xers and the, um, the boomers, but I trust me, I'm a boomer, <laughs> I know what I am. Um, you start to see how people really started to become aware. The, gen, the, the children that have been raised by Gen Xers are saying, we're not gonna live like this anymore. The boomers really, my parents really effed me up and now I'm going to change that. And so, then all of a sudden you started to hear the criticism of, oh, the helicopter parents are now in style. Well, you know what? The pendulum swings like that for a reason because we were way over here where the structure of this was so high and strong that people had to fight for their, to say when, when, when we have a constitution that protects all people, it means all people. And so when you're finally breaking free from that, that, sorry, I keep hitting my mic, that is going to swing really high over here to where you see an overabundance of protectionism because you do not want your, your children to experience the same things that you did. And now it's coming back and you're starting to see in the millennials and the Gen Zers and even in the alpha people that aren't afraid to, they're, they're not afraid to work. They're not afraid to, to use discernment, to do the work, to research and to use their voice for adv advocacy and ad activism. So you're starting to see a very much activated types of generation 
that all is part of the dismantling of these patriarchal systems that do not serve our highest good. They serve an elite, very few percentage that people are still trying to help, uh, primarily hold on to, which is the white Christian male. And that there, what I said right there might trigger some people, but it's indisputable. When you have Charlie Kirk just two days ago releasing a video that said our democracy will be threatened if Christianity isn't the filter through which we govern this nation, he means people who look like himself using the Bible as a weapon to continue to oppress how other people are going to show up in this world. Those are the people who want to go back to, to, the, to the original language that says all men are created equal, which basically protects Charlie and people who look like him. Now, are we really going to continue to live under this, this system, this systemic system of oppression? Because it's inarguable that it's there. And, you know, I always picture uh, patriarchy as, a, as like a buoy on a water. And at the very top, you have this white Christian male, and I'm primar primarily talking about America now, and then people whose ladder of privilege takes them up there. And as a white woman who lived most of my life as a Christian, I know my ladder is up pretty high. So as for my own season, I, I have to admit it too, because of my own compli com complicit bias, I carried water up that, that ladder to protect my status. When I said nothing, and I knew racism was sitting in the pews with me, and I knew that uh, homophobia was sitting in the pews with me, I said nothing. I internalized that patriarchy because I was comfortable in it. So you have, you have people on ladders up that patriarchy, and when you internalize it, that means you're saying, why can't things stay the way they are? Oh, so you're carrying water up that, up that uh, buoy for patriarchy because you like your place in it. And you're going to splash that water on anybody who's trying to climb that ladder. And you have some, you have some subset, subsets of people, your uh, black, indigenous, and people of color, who aren't even on the platform of the Bowie. They're underneath. And the only way they get air or, or any kind of benefits is because when the Bowie rocks. And they're supposed to be made to feel grateful because they're at least on the Bowie. And again, that's going to shake some people when you understand that systemic racism exists to the point that large majority of people don't even register on this system. Then you realize it's broken, but the data is there. The data clearly indicates how much the, the systems of oppression exist to make sure that nobody's ladder is getting to the top and some people have no means to get up onto the foundation. And that's how we build a system to keep people oppressed and away from this. Now, that system is entrenched in our religious organizations as well, primarily Christianity. And that's where you've seen the marriage of what's happening now in our country. So we're, it's not just the white male, it's the white Christian male. And you, it's indisputable when you look at the, law, the, the laws that are passed that are, uh, that are against critical race theory in education in our, in our public schools that doesn't even exist. It's about teaching our real history or whether or not we can say gay or whether or not we're going to allow parents, primarily white Christian parents, dictate what books our children are going to receive, are going to be in our, our libraries. 
because they're offended, because they're fearful that, that the system is wobbly. Thankfully, it is because patriarchy is not sustainable. And with, with the, uh, the oncoming of social media that has allowed us to find each other, compare our stories, and realize that we're not isolated. For a long time, we were siloed thinking people would leave church, and they have been leaving for eight decades. So people have been leaving church for eight, eight decades. They just didn't talk about it much. And now you've got social media, so we're not, no longer siloed. We are finding each other and realize that we have a voice and we have power because this isn't about whether or not patriarchy is working. This is about understanding that the vast majority of Americans want a system that is truly equitable and fair and built on justice. Why would anybody be threatened by that? Why would anybody not, if, you're, if your spirituality is compelling you to live a compassionate, humane, connected life, why in the world would you not want equity for all? Why would, instead of looking at a platform, that, a, a Bowie that goes like this, why not build that platform as wide as you possibly can? So everybody has the ability to be on that because it, it's not a system of power that puts the people in control who have had it. The one who teaches us that we must be silent and, and we must be, stay complicit. We must obey government power, church authority, and take whatever it is, even when we know that they're being hypocrites with what they say, because what they preach from the pulpit is not what they do in their own homes. But we have been conditioned to stay silent. And that is what's breaking off. Sermon over. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, you really shake things up and I love it because you're not afraid to talk about anything. And one thing I wanted to mention was that we um, in this country say liberty and justice for all, but I have yet to see it ever, ever. Um, okay, sermon over. <laughs> I well, want to touch on some, some things that you, you talked about in the sure. video, um, and then circle back. And I, I really wanted to expound on these because I think that these were two of probably the, the points that I felt most when I listened to it. Um, one of them was anything that had to do with mental or emotional challenges was a sign of weakness. And I wanted you to kind of t expound on that a bit because I understand it because feeling our feelings is difficult and it, it creates discomfort and we have to actually do something. So I think that the generations before us, an easy way to avoid that was to, you know, say if you like, for, for instance, men, if you cry, you're weak. So what are your thoughts on that since you so eloquently spoke about it? Well, so uh, I'll try not to go try, try not to go off too much on this one. Um, so this is primarily called spiritual bypassing. And when we talk about uh, types of abuse that people experience and suffer inside organized religion, um, this and, and I want to clarify that 
it doesn't necessarily happen just in Christianity. It happens in any place where there is a guru type leader that is needing to, to hold on to their place. And again, it's not pervasive across, across all of them, but spiritual bypassing and spiritual abuse can happen in different, uh, different places. But it also came home to me this week when I saw a video from now, y'all, you can love Candace Cameron Bure all you want. Okay. You can go to your Hallmark channel and watch her movies. It's uh, good on me. I think I've watched a few of them too. Loved her on Full House, all that stuff. But there is a toxic positivity that is happening with some of what she's offering as her belief system. And she just did a video where she was talking about when you're feeling sad and you can't get out of bed and you feel depressed. Now she's, now she's offering a clinical diagnosis inside her, her video. So it, I'm on cue listening to what she says. All you have to do is remember that that is the enemy attacking you. All you have to do is start praying to God and praying to Jesus and move closer to Jesus. So in other words, the underlying message there is that something is weak in your faith that is causing some of the emotional challenges that you are facing. So this is a form of spiritual bypassing because it's somehow putting it back on you that these emotional issues that can be clinically diagnosed in a setting that may require medication, it may require intense therapy, both of which I consider sacred uh, spiritual aspects of spiritual therapy because it's part of the mental, um, emotional, physical, and spiritual balance of life. So it's, if it's the only reason why you would be threatened by it is if you're afraid that the person with that is indoctrinated in your religious system turns away and is getting help from someplace else, that's considered a threat because how else are you going to continue to contribute financially to this perpetuation of this institution for which I'm responsible for if somehow you're giving your money and attention to someplace else? Now, that may sound crude, but this is a lot of times what's happening inside of these indoctrinated beliefs that tell you, don't look to Prozac, look to Jesus. And what really angers me about somebody who's a millionaire many times over telling someone that all you need is Jesus is that we have no idea the resources that Candace Cameron Bure have at her disposal to keep her balanced. I mean, her hair looks like it's blown out and she's got all, I'm sure she goes to massage therapy and she has counselors at her disposal because she has absolutely no idea what the average person is struggling with when it comes to self-care. She's just regurgitating an indoctrinated belief that is very harmful to the hundreds of thousands of people who liked that video. So I'm a big proponent of... Um, mental therapy being spiritual therapy as a, as part of what you do in my private practice for a while, I offered spiritual counseling when I uh, first came out of uh, seminary and I oftentimes worked with mental health professionals. They would have somebody who would come in and they would refer their clients to me because they were experiencing religious trauma and religious trauma right now is not even a diagnosable, uh, a diagnosis. It's not in the DSM-5, but they know it exists. 
So they're, they're moving people. And I, I acted like a spiritual triage for my clients. If I could get them to see that what, what's happening to them is not only just a spiritual crisis in their life, it's an emotional or mental crisis, I could move them on to mental therapy. So I think it's important that we understand that our weaknesses, our imbalances, our sadness, and sometimes our ability to get out of bed, especially for those of us who are really doing this kind of work and we're really in tune to the pain and, uh, and want to be a healing bomb, mental therapy is almost a requirement. And depression doesn't mean you're broken. It means you're human. And sometimes this world is hard mm. to, to move on without the care of someone helping you navigate what's happening. And it could be as simple as a chemical imbalance, or it could be something that you are navigating some hard things. And, and you know, a, a beautiful balance would be to have someone who's helping you with your spiritual care and your mental care. But if it requires mental care, then starting with that is something that, just like you started your podcast, we're not doing anything here to tell people not to take care of whatever they've gotten from their practitioners, their medical and therapeutic practi practitioners. We're just here to offer insights that can help accompany what the work that you're doing there. I love that you said depression doesn't mean that you're broken. It just means that you're human. Man, that is so therapeutic. And I think that a lot of us, well, another thing that you mentioned in the video was that church taught us that our emotional crisis was a lack of faith. And you, you kind of touched on that a bit, but, um, if someone was to tell you that you're depressed because you don't have enough faith, I mean, that in and of itself is so damaging and, and wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, learning about the nervous system and generational trauma and epigenetics, we carry trauma in our brain stems for seven generations, right? So I may be dealing with some unprocessed trauma that my great grandfather dealt with as a slave mm -hmm. and not knowing how to process that and looking for answers and someone telling me, you know, well, it could be your faith or it could be this or it could be that, that leaves me really with nothing to do but to feel shame. Yeah, exactly. And oftentimes, and you brought up the epigenetics, I'm fascinated by that. The studies that me they too. have done with uh, the uh, lineage of Nazi, the Holocaust survivors and their descendants and what that has caused in them. It's, we're just now getting to the, the science is just helping us understand some of the mental and emotional mechanisms that really are at our disposal to help us understand who, who we are. And I, I think that's another point I'd like to make is like somehow along the line, we decided we being those in, in authority decided that it was best to stake our claim on a spirituality that was anchored to thousands year old scripture. When humanity has been evolving this whole time as our, and, and we become aware, we, that awareness changes with us. Just like science says, what we know now isn't what we're going to know a hundred years from now. Just think about how the past 100 years have changed even in my lifetime where, you know, Will and my daughter was born, the PC was just coming out. You know, we, we, so much has happened in, in such a little amount of time, but somehow spirituality anchored itself 
to thousands year old scripture and said, okay, that's it. That's as far as we're going. And we're going to judge the entire entirety of humanity because we just stopped waking up right there. It makes no sense. It makes no sense when every other aspect of our lives, we are okay with moving forward because we are understanding how we are changing and evolving and learning. So why can't that be the same with spirituality? Why are we afraid of that? I agree. Um, I think that something else that happens is a lot of times people um, feel like they, they have to choose between betraying their lived experience um, or their faith if they're asked to rationalize toxic people, toxic behavior, toxic family systems, relationships, etc. Um, and you kind of spoke on that a little bit too, but could you, could you kind of dive into that a little bit more? So do you mean like what it means, this, this, this conflict of I'm moving here, I'm, I, I feel myself changing, but I'm still in a community with people who believe this certain way? Right. Is, that, is that what you mean? Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to make sure I understand that because, oh, wow. <laughs> well, I, I started this by saying that when I first went to seminary, uh, I was in seminary. Well, even when I was in college, I went to, I studied biblical studies and then I studied world religions. And then I went on to seminary. I didn't tell anybody except my husband and my kids. I didn't tell anybody in my circle because of that very, that conflict. I wasn't sure what I was going to do with this. And there was part of me who could not believe, even though I was at the time holding a lot of anger and bitterness about my religious heritage I did not know what this meant for me. And eventually when I did proclaim who I was, I did lose friends. I did lose family members. And that sometimes, you know, that even, even now those indoctrinated beliefs and who I was as that, as that, in that indoctrination will come forth and check on me. Like, are we sure we're okay here? Are we sure? that this was the right thing. And inevitably it's yes. Now have some things healed over time. Yes, it has, but there, there are times. And I will tell people this, that when you are just learning, you are on a healing journey and you understand that some of the things that, that you're carrying in your suitcase of, of your lived experiences, which include your educational, your familial, your societal, everything that you are, you're carrying this suitcase and it's becoming too heavy. And if we don't sit, set it down and unpack it and, and look at the things that no longer serve our highest good, one of these days it's just gonna come crashing down spectacularly because you will hit some kind of life crisis. And usually in my spiritual counseling sessions, that's where I would get people when the, when the suitcase exploded. And I try to get them to calm down to understand that we're going to look at this suitcase sitting here all exploded as an opportunity because you, there's no, you're not going to get that stuff back in the suitcase and get it closed. You're just not. So let's look at this as an opportunity. So whether you're going to set it down and unpack it, but when you start to do that, that alone can start to change the relationships that you're having with those in your inner circle. And you often find that some of the people that are in your inner circle, I'm not saying all the times, I don't want to scare people here, but you will find out that there are people who should never have been in your inner circle. 
or you'll find that there's some people who you've kept out because of some of the beliefs that you held about who you were and who they were, who actually are good for your soul, need to be brought in to the circle. And so this, there's this ebbing and flowing that happens. Now, in my situation, it very much was a place where I had too many people in my inner circle that did not honor my beliefs and my values anymore. So I always say, as you're learning to have your voice, you're learning what your beliefs are, keep your walls high and your moats deep. Mm -hmm. And you'll know, you'll continue to assess, can I bring that wall down a little bit? Can we start to build a bridge that's over some of the troubled waters of our past? Can we find a bridge back to each other? Or is this still, when I look over there and you see me, you're still wanting the old me back. Okay, nope, I got to put that boundary back up because I'm going, I deserve my seat at the table. No one's going to kick it out from me anymore. I am who I am. And this is the, the divine creature, beautiful being that I was always supposed to be. And I'm not going to allow someone else to place a narrative over me of who I was. For me, for years, I tried to be the good Christian. I tried. I worked if I was volunteering for everything. And if, the, and if the church leader said, hey, God told me that you need to head this event, I did it. I was constantly working unpaid at the church. And I got a lot to say about that, but I'll, I'll stop there. I won't go down that rabbit hole. But I tried to be that. And I caught, because I thought that that's what it meant to be a good Christian was to live sacrificially. And th there were so many people in my inner circle who took advantage, who loved that part of me. But when I started to have boundaries and learning to say no, they were angry. And that was family. That was quote unquote friends. And most of the people in my spiritual community, when I said, no, I'm not doing that anymore, then I was the problem. I lacked the faith. I was turning in a hardened heart. When in reality, I was finding a spirituality that resonated so deeply because I could see in each other's traditions and how this mindset had really kept me. I always thought I was a good person, but I was not a good advocate. I was not a good ally. I carried a sign at George Floyd that I made for my grandkids. It's just said, look, grandkids, uh, up until now, I talked it, and now I'm walking it. I want, If you don't remember me doing anything, this is the day that I started to really walk it. And that is the point, especially, I think, for white people when it comes to um, deconstructing your faith, how much we have to decolonize our faith and how much we have to decolonize our existence because we don't even realize how much we have been impacted by that. And that's, that could be a whole topic there, Jalon. But so, but those required high boundaries. I will have people now that the first thing when they, when they see me, I haven't seen them in three years. And the first thing they'll see, see me is they'll say something like, don't you tell me I'm a racist. Okay. They've seen a video and I'm that they're triggered by something or they'll say, Oh, you don't believe in the King James Bible. Huh? And I'm like, what are you talking about? I, you know, where did that come from? And obviously I have things to say about the King James Bible, but 
they, they are triggered by that. And it's like, okay, I've made the right decision by moving them out of my inner circle because I have to honor this truth. And it's more important for me now to get that letter that I did yesterday from a mother whose 28 year old daughter is coming out and who binge watched three years of my videos to feel seen and loved and worthy. And she wanted to thank me because she couldn't find the words to help her daughter. That means more to me. I'll never, I may never meet that young woman, but that means more to me now because in my authenticity, I helped someone on their healing journey to find their authenticity, to live, to reclaim their humanity because they showed up in the skin that they were born in and they are not a flaw because of that. That was beautiful. That really was. Um, thank you for that. And thank you for realizing that there was, I guess, things in your life that you needed to change because of just the privilege that you held. Um, and I, I was really touched by what you said about the sign that you made for um, George Floyd. I, I felt that deeply and I want to say thank you for that. And I, I do think that you are, and, and you, I think you've reclaimed your power. You've stepped into it beautifully and you're using your voice to help others. And, and that is something that you can't put a price on because you're doing it authentically and you're doing it with love. Thank you. You're very welcome. I didn't expect to get emotional. <laughs> we're human yes we are human we are um and i think the beauty of being human is vulnerability and emotion so there's no reason for you to feel any type of way about mm. that other than the fact that you're just beautifully human <laughs> um i wanted to ask you another question sure um what is cognitive dissonance and how can it play a role in belief systems well, okay, so it's the, the term cognitive dissonance is really about how we can we hold on to these beliefs that really conflict with who we are. And I think that that the reason why that really shows up in a, in religion is there are a lot of people sitting in the pews who are trying to reconcile this 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 kind and loving creator with this fear-based theology that teaches them that God is an angry and vengeful God and, and trying to hold this space between how do I, how do I love, how is this, how is this all encompassing, all forgiving, all loving God who then, and I'm going to get a little theological here, here, um, who then had to sacrifice their, their son, for, because I was, I showed up in the world as unworthy of salvation unless that sacrifice happened. And yet I'm, I'm, I'm to also to believe that this God will, will strike me down in, in, in a minute, in a second, if I'm somehow step out of line. And you'll, you'll see that in, uh, well, mantras like, um, love the, love the sinner, hate the sin. 
that's a perfect example of a, of a cognitive dissidence that's been indoctrinated into people. And the reason you get these kinds of phrases, you know, I call it being spoon fed from the pulpit where you don't really, people don't understand that first of all, this isn't scriptural. I think it was said in the fourth century. Um, but it, and it's also what is, is a misspeak of, of the original text, but or the original writing, which I think was the fourth century. I can't remember right now. St. Augustine, I think said it, but it weaponizes a belief that then you have the ability to go out into the world and judge people because I, as the, the keeper of my belief system, then have a filter or a narrative through which I can see the entire, the entirety of humanity. And I get to then gatekeep everyone's spirituality based on this one phrase love the sinner, hate the sin. And because I have been told in my little cheat sheet here, what is a sin, then I get to judge the rest of the world. But I love you anyway. I love you. But in your sin, I just want to tell you, you're going to hell. But see how much I love you because I'm telling you this. Now you try to hold space for that. Try parenting that way. This is for your own good. And I'm embarrassed that that's, that probably has come from my mouth a time or two, but people are pushing back on this, this, this kind of, these kinds of teaching because no one has the right to hold that kind of judgment on you as a, as a pervasive theology that says, because we're the keeper of how people should show up in the world, I have the right to tell you how to live. So cognitive dissonance will it, it tell you that you've got to figure out how to reconcile that you are in, uh, in a belief system that says, I have this kind and loving God who's also fearful. And the way it showed up for me is my desire to always try to please God, to always seek out God. But in 91, I believe, the first time I went to a church and a woman was preaching, I had heart palpitations. I thought I was, it's 85 degrees and sunny. And I thought when I go outside, I'm going to get, I'm going to get struck by lightning because I, because I, I'm just sitting in this church, but I have made myself unworthy. I'm seeking out God's love, but I have now angered him that I'm going to go outside and get hit by lightning. I remember that day just as plain as day. Now, Obviously, I have deconstructed from that belief because as I sit here and am now an ordained minister, I could see that, that that was one of those indoctrinated beliefs that I needed to peel away from because of toxicity it held for me. That, that, that tension and that irreconciling a love, an all-encompassing divine knowing, divine consciousness, indwelling presence, Christ consciousness, whatever name you need to give God to, to bring you to this place of holy, I could no longer reconcile it with one that would, I was afraid to walk out of the church because I was going to get struck by lightning. So, 
that is where I think a lot of people are finally saying, I can no longer reconcile this. I can't hold this space. This is too much. I'm not supposed to be as one human being able to hold this space anymore. Now, some people do. Some people find that that their entire spiritual existence, their spiritual identity is wrapped up in holding the space of cognitive dissonance. So how does it show up in comments? Just go read some of mine that people will leave and say, I'm going to pray for you because you're a heretic. Okay. You're, or I, I want you to know God loves you, but you're evil. You're, you're, there's no reconciling that, but they, they, they have to, that, that's the only way they know how to show their faith. That's the only way. And I will, any of your listeners who are in that space, I would invite you to take a real hard look at what exactly you are doing with your spirituality, that the only way you are showing up in the world as a kind and loving person is by weaponizing your faith. And there are people that that's all they do. And somehow they think that that is going to point them to, they're going to get stars in their crown or reward in heaven and a pat on the back by saying, oh, hey, yay, high five. I saw all those uh, fire emojis that you posted on comments and that said, ha ha, you're going to hell. I'll laugh at you from heaven. But just remember, God loves you. It can't be reconciled. So there's a dissonance in the two. So some may listen to you and and think that, okay, she thinks she knows it all or, um, you know, she's she's teaching that her way is the only way or that she's telling people that they have to disown their faith. How do you respond to that? I know I'm hard. I know I'm hard to digest. And I know that uh, people will take offense to me, but I want us to go back to duality. Two things can be true. And when it's, it's not the entirety of religion, it's not the entirety of Christianity, it's not the entirety of denominational experiences, but this table of humanity, our spirituality is more tied to how we show up in this world and do we leave this world a better place because we were in it than just hyper-focusing on salvation. If that's your faith and that brings you comfort, then you don't need my permission. You don't need my permission to have that kind of faith. But this table of humanity is big enough for all of us to exist. The part that people are pushing back on, including myself, is the fact that no one has the right to gatekeep how another person is showing up in their lives. It has no reflection on your beliefs. It has no reflection on your spirituality. And so again, two things can be true. Religion and can be a wonderful, beautiful, nurturing experience. And, some for, and for some people it can't. And our voices should no longer be silenced because we are finding a different path. And the, so the only thing I push back on, I, I have on many of my platforms, I say human rights over religious beliefs, because the minute that your beliefs become weaponized to the point where you feel like, because someone doesn't look like, love like, or believe like you do, that you have the right 
to gatekeep how they're going to show up, or you have the right to suppress their rights, then you are no longer practicing a faith. You are practicing bigotry and you're wrapping it in beliefs, but it is not, it is not spirituality. It's a control system at that time. So that is, that's where I, that's what I push back on. And I think that's an important uh, accountability that we need to start talking more about, especially as we see the threat to our democracy here in America. So faith can happen. I, I, I often tell people, you can believe that being gay is a sin. I'm not telling you not to believe that in your church. I'm not telling you not to believe that in your home. But your neighbor, who is a kind human and who's, who is a, a female married to her female partner, has every right to existence and compassion and love as you do. And when we weaponize that to limit how she, how they're going to show up, that is not Jesus. It can never be reconciled with the teachings of Jesus ever, ever. Um, okay. So as we, as we wrap up a bit, there was one point that I wanted to make and I couldn't memorize it. So <laughs> I, I remember just telling myself, okay, just read it because I, it was important to me and I wanted to get your feedback on it. And okay. it's that, um, I've noticed that at times some don't have an, an identity outside of their beliefs. So if they're asked to have a difficult conversation or if they perceive that their beliefs are being challenged, it's often viewed as a personal attack. We can lovingly and peacefully agree to disagree or feel differently about things and still recognize that we have deep affection and respect for each other and acknowledge that even with the best intentions, people can get hurt and it's unhealthy to overlook the pain of their lived experiences in the name of anything. Mm, that's beautiful. I don't know if I can add anything to that. <laughs> Did you write that? It was just something that I wanted to put together, I guess. I don't even feel like it was written as much as it was just a thought. It was, it was how I wanted this episode to be remembered. Well, yeah, I have, a, I'm a very, you know, I'm, I'm very outspoken and I can see where the way I, my, my words can, can rattle people. Um, and that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm a disruptor that I, I now understand that I step fully into, into that. You're, you're like a, you're like a healing bomb in the way you approach that. And I love that. I think again, both, both approaches are true and both approaches are needed. And I, I hope that whoever heard what you just said and what we talked about here understands that that is, that is so true, that we, we should be able to live together. We should be able to respect one another. And, and that is going to take some more dismantling. It's, it's, that when systems, when old systems are dying, there is a system, there is tension there. And we are in that, we are in a season of tension, which I, I do believe will get worse before it gets better, but I, it will get better because humanity is always evolving towards kindness and compassion. It, we, it will get better. Kindness will win 
and um, social justice and equity will win. But it's going, it's going to take time. The work that's been started centuries ago will continue to evolve. System of, of oppressions just cannot stand. And so we have to look at, you know, what is it that's rattling inside of us when we feel threatened by something new, when we feel uncomfortable by something new. You, you know, you saw it with the, not to bring up a too hot of a topic, but Dylan Mulvaney's Bud Light commercial and sponsorship of a, you know, a trans woman is rattling the world right now. And all she did was drink a beer. It's true. Um, I remember when we first spoke, I told you this conversation was going to raise some eyebrows, which is fine because while they're raised, there's plenty of things to talk about. Um, so I don't have a problem with, with being outspoken about um, a, a topic or a conversation that I feel deserves attention, no matter how anybody else feels about it. Um, but also, I think to shy away from any topic or conversation because it's uncomfortable is a disservice. And um, so many don't know what they're shying away from because they never had a voice to begin with. So for a lot of people to even start a conversation about these topics, it's hard, let alone to have an opinion about it. And that is what my goal was to allow for anyone who may have experienced something that was uncomfortable or that was um, inappropriate to be able to say, you know, that happened and it wasn't right. And I was hurt by it. And also whatever else comes after that, it doesn't have to be these things can't be spoken about because someone says they can't be talked about because that is the complete opposite of, of love or compassion. That's beautiful. You're a preacher. <laughs> I, I, I think there's, there is one thing I'll, I'll, I think I know we're, we're wrapping up here, but the, I had a thought this week. I shared it during, in my Patreon community where I was talking about the, the importance of Jesus's message where he said, you know, love your neighbor as yourself and, you know, love Lord God with all your might and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself on the, these two laws, all the prophets, words, and laws hang. I told you he eventually. <laughs> so if that's our highest beacon and, and Jesus tells us that's our highest beacon and everything that we do, Gabriel, it's time. Everything that we do, we build a system on those, on that, the tenets of love your neighbor, then our religions look different. Many times, love your neighbor becomes a condition down here. I have the beacon of controlling people's beliefs and once they, or their lives, and once they pass through these conditions, I'll love my neighbor. Mm. And we, we have to really reconsider our spiritual identities on what does love your neighbor mean to us. And boy, when I put that out on social media, you'll get a, well, as long as they, as long as they enter my country legally, and as long as they, as long as they, as long as they, from talk right to act right, to live right, to wear your clothes right, to whatever, you can put these conditions on it. So if that's here, 
then it filters down to how we, and, and instead of it being here and we say, no, we get to be the gatekeeper and then they pass through it, then I'm going to love you. Mm. And I don't know, something you just said re reminded me of that teaching. And I thought I've never, I never even thought about how often I don't, I need mm. to rethink some of my own biases and make mm. sure that I'm still, I'm still facing those. You don't live a life of 50 some years and still not understand that I still have things to learn. So I, I, I follow so many uh, black indigenous of people of color because I'm listening. I got my notebook out and I'm listening. I think, oh, wow, I just did that. I won't do that again. And um, that, you know, that's important that we're constantly, constantly learning. So, yeah, people might think I'm a know-it-all, but I don't, I'm not. I'm still learning. That's wonderful. So last question. Using your platform, what is it you want people to know most? I want people to, I, I, the people who are following me, I want them to know that they matter. Like that email I shared, they're not broken. They're not flawed. They have a right to be here. They have a right to heal from their trauma. That if church isn't serving you, then there is a spirituality out here that will. And that the divine creator, the universal love is available to us no matter what path we navigate that on. And that's not spiritual light. Soul work is hard. Soul work is accountability. And I ask people to invest in it. When you look at, you know, do you, you got to do the work. So it's not about cherry picking verses. It's not about assimilating other people's beliefs. It's about what is it that that will serve my highest good so that I can leave this world um, a better place that I found it. And that's, that's my legacy. And that's how my spirituality is tied, tied to me. And that's how I try to approach my teachings. So that's what I want people to know. Well, I appreciate your time. I appreciate what you do, the way that you um, are led by love and how you are disrupting things that need attention. No, it's been um, an so honor. I say thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's been an honor. Where can people find you on uh, online or on social media if they want to look you up? You can find me at on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at, at Rev Carla. And you can find me on my website at RevCarla.com. Well, again, I just want to say thank you for who you are. Thank you. What you do, the way you do it, and for your time. I'm so honored that we're in this on this journey together. Thank you.